Do you remember where you were when the Twin Towers went down? Boy, I sure do. I was in Ebbets Field Restaurant with Buzz Oatman, and we were sitting there looking at the TV and saw the towers crumble. Historical events like that leave an indelible impression. In November 1963, the British novelist David Lodge sat in a London theater watching a satirical play that he had helped write. And one sketch called for a character to show an attitude of carelessness during an interview that was taking place on the stage. And he did that by holding up a transistor radio to his ear and to develop more realism, they actually had the radio on, tuned in to a news station. And on that fateful day, the announcer in the middle of this play uh, broke in to tell the listening audience that John F. Kennedy had been shot. The actor frantically turned off the radio, but it was too late. Reality had interrupted fantasy. Death had put an end to comedy. And at various times, God interrupts history. He did so at the incarnation. He did so at the crucifixion. He did so at the resurrection, at Pentecost. And in in Acts 17, he sent the gospel to a cultural and educational center of the Greco-Roman world. He had sent his son to die and has brought our salvation through the resurrection and was now inviting people everywhere to repent. But not only that, but God also can intervene and will in the future with a day of judgment that's going to be presided over by Jesus. Again and again in Acts, we see God interrupting events in supernatural ways and inviting people to leave their either their pagan idolatry, which was rife in Acts, or their religious legalism. And they were being confronted with a, a gospel life centered on Jesus. Perhaps for us today, we have to ask ourselves, does my life need an interruption? Am I open to God interrupting my life for some kind of a spiritual endeavor with him. Let's look at Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Let's all stand. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them 
and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money of security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You may be seated. The missionaries made their way some 33 miles to Amphopolis, 27 miles to Apollonia, and then 37 miles to Thessalonica. It's hard to see, but if you go to the top right, you can see Philippi, and then these cities are spread out. Uh, and so Paul was traveling in that top corridor to city of Thessalonica. In total, it was about 100 miles, 30-some miles in between each city. Now, that'd be about three days by horse, or if they walked, it would obviously be a lot longer. It's assumed that Paul did not stop in the two other cities that are mentioned, um, and we assume that there were not synagogues in those cities, which is why uh, he just went on. So they made their way through this mountainous region along what's called the Ignatian Way to the capital of Macedonia, Thessalonica. In fact, archaeological evidence indicates that the Thessalonians were very proud of their Roman identity. They were devoted to the emperor as a god. And that's going to be germane to our story. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now we've seen before that Paul's strategy was to take the gospel first to the Jews. Then the Jews obviously have to come to Christ on the same basis as anyone else, but they were also God's chosen people. They were guardians of the revelation that was given to God, God's special revelation, speaking of the Old Testament, and the people through whom the redemptive plan of God was delivered to humanity. And so it's the Jews who were evangelized first when Paul entered this region. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Now, our passage tells us that Paul spent at least three Sabbath days explaining the gospel to the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is not intended to mean that he only spent three uh, Sabbaths in, the, in, in this region, but rather that he spent three Sabbaths explaining the gospel to the Jews. And the reason we say this is because we read elsewhere, for instance, that the Philippian church sent money to Paul in this region on two separate occasions. And, you know, they didn't have the use of wiring money, right? That took a while. Uh, Paul also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 that he did manual labor so as not to be a burden to those in the region that he was staying with. And we know that many Jews rejected what Paul had to say on these three Sabbaths. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 
that many Gentiles turned to Christ because Paul spent considerable time explaining the gospel to them. So I say all that just to make the point that when you add up these events, they point to a much lengthier stay than just three weeks at Thessalonica. Now, Paul was explaining and proving to the Jews that Christ was indeed the Messiah. Christ's work on the cross, culminating with the resurrection, was the emphatic proof. And explaining and proving the truth of the Old Testament was Paul's tactic. How many of you, when you give the gospel, use only the Old Testament? Yet that is exactly what was being done. In a time today where the Old Testament is derided, I want us to take note again that the Old Testament was all the scriptures that the earliest believers had, and Paul used it to convey the gospel to drive a line straight to Jesus. Over 300 prophecies are in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament 50 times, over 50 times. Think of that. Did he think that it was not worth putting our time into? Did he think it's just too gory, too misguided, some age gone by? I don't think so. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired. He said, the scriptures cannot be broken in John 10, 35. The Old Testament was the only scriptures they had. He called the Old Testament scriptures the commandment of God and the word of God. Jesus had a firm commitment to the Old Testament as the word of God. And what I think is one of the most fascinating encounters recorded in Scripture, we read in Luke 24 about a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus with two of his disciples. Now, they do not know that it is Jesus. They were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, even though the Old Testament said he would, even though Jesus said he would. Even more, they recount an empty tomb. They admit to Jesus as they're talking, yeah, the tomb is empty. We just have no idea where the body is. <laughs> they couldn't make the connection of the resurrection. They admit that some ladies went to the tomb and they couldn't find him. And I want you to listen to how Jesus reveals his identity to these two gentlemen. It's in Luke 24, Verses 17 through 27 is what I'm going to read. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, how weird is it that they're talking about that? And that's Jesus. They just don't know it. 
a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and and word before God and all the people, and how our priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had not that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I want you to see is that Jesus was using the Old Testament to convey to these two men who he really was. So the question is, can you really know who Jesus really is without the Old Testament? It's an amazing thing. And we learn later Their eyes were opened, and their hearts burned within them as they listened to Jesus teaching them. When Isaiah wrote that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who did people think he was talking about? When Micah 5.2 says that he would be born in Bethlehem, How can it be any other person but Jesus? These are prophecies written hundreds of years before the event. When Isaiah 7.14 says that he was born of a virgin, doesn't Jesus fulfill that? When Zechariah 9.9 says that he will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, doesn't that remind you of the triumphal entry of Jesus? When Psalm 4. 41.9 says that a friend will betray him. Does that not speak of Judas and his interaction with Jesus? When Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 says he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. How can you not see the transaction between Judas with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus? When Isaiah 53, 7 says that he will be silent before his accusers. Does this not portray Christ on the cross. It also says in Isaiah, he will be crucified with criminals, speaking of the the two thieves on either side of him. Isaiah 56 also says he will be spat upon. Psalm 22 says that he will be mocked, taunted, crucified, and his garments sold. I could go on and on and account for all of these 300 prophecies and explaining how each one was fulfilled in Christ alone. So what other conclusion can you reach other than that Jesus was and is the Messiah? He died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and those who trust him can be forgiven and called the children of God. Great confidence Jesus had in the Old Testament. Listen, that takes time. 
It takes patience to open up the scriptures and to explain these things. And some people just don't want to take the time. They would rather woo people with emotional appeals and promises of a better life as long as you just walk an aisle. But discipleship cannot be reduced to an event. It's a process where we give the Holy Spirit time to apply the word of God to our hearts and to bring repentance. It's interesting to me how many people downplay the interaction to explain the word of God, to deal with things like apologetics, to demonstrate with evidence the veracity of the Bible or of Christ, just like Paul did here. In fact, you might hear people say, you know, that's just, uh, that's not for me, Uh, that's just too academic, or we just need to live the word, I don't need to defend it. People act like defending the truth, contending for the truth is not appropriate, as if they're beyond that. Well, you know, Paul would later write that we're to fight the good fight of the faith, all right? Preposition before faith, it's speaking of the content of truth, the faith. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you, Paul wrote to a young pastor. Peter would write, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You're not a know-it-all. You're not just dispensing your knowledge to somebody to let them know how smart you are. You're not just throwing out theological terms to impress somebody. You're doing it to, to draw a line between Jesus and the evidence. And then that allows the Holy Spirit to work on them and to convince them of the truthfulness of the gospel. It takes time. It takes time. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I mean, how can you not respond to these words from God? Apparently, many did by affirming their faith in Christ. There were Jews who affirmed their faith. There were Greeks or Gentiles. And then there were women who were also leaders in the community who became followers of Christ. It's an odd way of saying, but when it says not a few, it means many women came to faith. In other words, there was a large crowd of people who responded to the gospel. The preaching of the gospel stirs the souls. It has a way of shaking up our old values, does it not? has a way of showing us our own, where our security is and where it should be. And whether you call it a spirit-filled life, a Christ-centered, a dependent life, or being a follower of Jesus, all these things begin with a confrontation of some sorts of our real selves with who Christ is. 
Now, we may ease into that with a a contemplative season, or it might be more immediate, but make no mistake, it has to be decisive for each of us. And some of you perhaps have been postponing that decision, but the evidence is there. He is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, what objection is worth rejecting his invitation to follow him? And Christian, what objection is worth waiting to really become a wholly dedicated disciple? Paul's message not only brought conversion, but it brought hostility. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was able to write about the actual motives. Now, this is something that we often don't get to see because we can't look inside the hearts of somebody and we don't have the advantage that Luke had of writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and knowing for certain what the motives of another person is. But in this case, it was jealousy. The religious leaders were jealous because the response to Paul and Silas was so dramatic in number. It was this great appeal that Paul and Silas had and their message, something that was missing with what was represented in Judaism during that time. So what did these religious leaders do? They created trouble. They got a bunch of people from the street who apparently were not ever accomplishing much of anything. In fact, the Greek for wicked men of the rabble, isn't that an, it's a phrase I bet you hardly ever heard before, wicked men of the rabble. Uh, What that means is that they were just loitering around waiting for trouble. Just waiting for trouble, not accomplishing anything. That's the idea. This trouble was not stirred up by Paul and Silas. The trouble was stirred up by religious leaders who were jealous, who were not getting the recognition they wanted, and they were causing an uproar, which means it was just short of a riot. What we have displayed here is the anatomy of some of the worst of humanity when conflict arises. And unfortunately, most churches are familiar with this. I've seen this scenario played out more than once, and it always creates victims. First, people feel something like jealousy. There's something going on inside the heart that's not good. They may feel like they are getting 
the short end of the stick. And then another leader or person is in the bullseye because they're perceived as causing the slight. Or they see a person who gets more attention. Or they see a person who gets more of a following. So after this, there is an unholy alliance, just like what happened with these Jews. An unholy alliance is formed all under the guise of what is best for the church or what is fair or what is right. And once these alliances are formed, and here's how you can always smell a rat in terms of the situation, there's a refusal to resolve with humility and love. Instead, what they do is create distance between themselves and the offending parties. And they'll self-righteously stay in their club so that the wounds are nursed, the opposition is maligned, and resolution never occurs. We see it at work. We see it in families. You know, you have to dislike the same people I dislike. You have to have an enemy just like my enemy. Sometimes that's what people are requiring of you to stay their friend. And this is what Luke calls it, a wicked work. He said these are wicked men who are participating in this. They cause trouble, they run, they are not accountable. They rarely initiate real resolution because their pride will not allow them. This is why I think it's so much better when you have a negative perception of another person for you to keep it to yourself and not communicate that. Let their actions prove it instead of you saying it, especially to multiple people. Because once you start gossiping, once you start talking about others behind their back, you now have all these people that you want to save face with. And whether it's insecurity to keep the alliances or pride to never admit you're wrong, you have created pressure to preserve some respect. And if you'd have just kept your mouth shut, you wouldn't have to do all that. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. The fool believes his or her own perceptions without listening, without considering. We also read in Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is true, what is honorable, what is just. And then just read through 1 Corinthians 15 about what, what love does. Love believes all things. It believes the best. It doesn't run on those perceptions. You know, most, most troublemakers don't care about who gets caught in the crossfire. And in this case, it was a guy named Jason. Now, we can only conjecture about him since 
Luke does not really give us any details about who this man is. And perhaps Luke is assuming that the original readers of the book of Acts already were familiar with who Jason was. We don't know. Now, it's likely that he was a Jew because if Paul stayed with him, that would make sense to not upset the Jews because you remember how they would get upset if you stayed overnight and ate a meal with Gentiles. So Paul, not wanting to create any further trouble, usually would stay with a Jewish family if there was a a well-known Jewish community in the vicinity and he was going to go preach in the synagogue. Um, They couldn't find Paul. So they dragged Jason before the city officials with drummed-up charges. The text says they, they bring him out, which is a way of saying they've already counted him guilty and they have punishment on their mind. They forcibly bring Jason and others before the city officials. Now, the charges include this that they are causing trouble all over the world. I mean, nothing like a little hyperbole to throw fuel on the fire, right? Now, how do they know that, of what's going on all over the world? Okay? Second, they are rebelling against Caesar, they say. Now, this is something that Rome was very sensitive to. Roman rulers wanted to be worshipped and revered. So when Christians talk about worshiping their God, worshiping the Son, they would twist that to mean they are rebelling against Caesar. And thirdly, they said they serve another king. They serve another king. Again, they are twisting the Christian perspective. We are are told to, to honor the earthly king, right? To even pray for our leaders, And we honor them and we submit to them unless these earthly leaders ask us to do something that defies God or his moral laws. But Romans were especially delicate when it came to rebellion. And they would often quell uprisings with swift justice. So the plan to accuse your enemies of this false charge and prey upon the fears and dispositions of others, that worked in this case. And this was a similar tactic that was used even in getting Jesus crucified. We recall Jesus in Pilate's Hall and that frantic multitude in Jerusalem screaming, we have no king but Jesus, but, but Caesar, excuse me. We have no king but Caesar. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So it seems like an odd way to deal with this, but Jason was required to post bond. (laughs) Depositing a sum of money that would be forfeited should there be any sequel of Paul and Silas preaching again in Thessalonica. In fact, Paul may have been referring to this ban in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 when he spoke of being hindered by Satan and not returning to the city. Now notice, these religious leaders never deal with the substance of the matter. 
And that's what troublemakers do. They never deal with the real issues. The real issue was the qualifications of Jesus being the Messiah and their need of repentance. I mean, fools use diversions instead of dealing with the matters of their own heart. What a contrast. Many, many choose repentance after hearing the gospel. And others oppose the gospel with, with false charges and a, a near riot. And then a restraining order. Repentance is the call of the day, is it not? A quick change of heart. My dear friends, we, we, we need to be in such communion with God that when we've done wrong, we, we, we are to repent quickly and humble ourselves before God so that there's not a, a lengthy time of, of that unrepentance creating a hard heart. Listen, if you've waited to accept the terms of being a disciple of Christ. Don't wait another day. Admit your sin. Give yourself to him wholly and completely. If you've been a part of a conflict and not a part of the solution, it's time to show humility and repent and initiate resolution. And if you're here today and you've never bowed a knee to Jesus, in terms of affirming the gospel, let today be your day of salvation. All of these scenarios are repentance. It's a, it's a turning away of our own independent, selfish ways and a turning to God and what needs to be done. Let's pray.